take your Bible, if you would, and turn with me. Uh, we're starting a new series this weekend, Go Fish. And we're going to look at the book of Jonah. Uh, if you have your Bible and you're trying to turn to the book of Jonah, I would just encourage you, go to the table of contents. It's not an easy, it's a short one. It's in the Old Testament. It's kind of hidden. It's one of those ones that kind of uh, moves around, I feel like, a little bit. So anyway, just go to the table of contents. But as you're turning there... Um, as we think about the story of Jonah, most of us, even if we didn't grow up in the church, most of us know the basic story of the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is something you at least know enough to know that something about a fish, something about some guy that gets swallowed by a fish. And to be fair, as you look at the entire book, the four chapters of Jonah, there's only actually a couple verses that talk about the fish part. The whole rest of it, there's so much more. So, um, and then I think probably because it's so incredible, that piece of the story, that's the part that we remember, but there's so much more than that. We're going to look at, uh, yeah, the fish part, but really the, the broader uh, story of the book of Jonah. As you think about the, that, it probably begs the question. Some of you are wondering, well, what do you think about that fish thing? Was he actually swallowed by an actual fish? Or is it more of a, an allegory and, and it teaches a lesson, but it wasn't actually a historical event? And it probably depends, for most of us, probably depends on how we view the rest of Scripture. So uh, if we look at Scripture as this is God's story, this is, this is God created the world, uh, we see that in Scripture, and, and some, some of those things, and you see God at the center of that. If you look at the story of the resurrection of Jesus, and you see that as a, uh, that Jesus literally had a bodily resurrection, um, you know, some of those things. Some of the other miracles of Scripture that, yeah, you're, you're all in. It depends on, probably, how you look at other parts of Scripture, how you look at the story of the great miracle that we see here in the book of Jonah. Um, and I would just say this, I'll throw out my personal opinion, that I believe that we serve a miraculous God. I believe that he created our world. I believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ as our Savior. I believe in the miracles that I see in Scripture. I believe uh, that, that, that this story of Jonah is an actual historical story. I believe that God is still in the business of doing miraculous things. And there's some of you that have a story about how God intervened in your life personally and did something miraculous in your life. The thing that I would, that I would point to that really helps me to look at it as history is what Jesus said about it. And Jesus, what he had to say in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew chapter 12, he makes reference to this story, the story of Jonah and being swallowed by a fish, and he compares his coming resurrection and burial and, and death and being in the grave for three days. He compares that to Jonah being in the belly of the fish for that similar time period. So, uh, as I look at Scripture, I see Jesus referring to it as, in my opinion, referring to it as a historical event. And so, I'm just on Team Jesus. So, if that's the way he was looking at it, that's the way I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have that bent to look at it the way Jesus looked at it. But what I would say to you, if you're not there, don't get distracted by a fish. Your salvation does not hinge on what you believe about a fish. Okay? It's a couple verses. So don't get distracted by the fish. There's some wonderful things that God wants to teach us that have 
application for our lives, uh, both as individuals and for us as a church that we're going to look at today. Now, I always like to look at what's the context of the story, uh, what's the background of what was going on in the time period that the, you know, something in Scripture is written. And here in the book of Jonah, I think it really helps us to understand what was going on. And as we read this first chapter, let me, and before I read it, let me give us that context. Jonah was a prophet called by God to deliver his message to the northern kingdom of Israel during a time that was during the reign of Jeroboam II, during a time when the kingdom was divided between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And in this same time, the northern kingdom was uh, just to the north of this northern kingdom of Israel was a nation called Assyria that had risen to power, the Assyrian Empire, and it was the dominant world power of the day. History teaches us, world history teaches us, that the Assyrians were one of the cruelest and vilest and violent, most violent empires of the ancient world. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a book called The Prodigal Prophet. I would encourage you to read it if you want some, some bonus material. Uh, in my preparation for this uh, series, uh, great book. I'll draw some things from Keller even today, but over the course of the next few weeks. And, uh, just a, a great book. But here's what he had to say about the Assyrian Empire. He said this, is one of the cruelest and most violent empires of the ancient world. Assyrian kings often recorded the results of their military victories. Gloating of whole plains littered with corpses, of cities burned completely to the ground. The emperor, emperor Shalemeser III is well known for his depictions of the torture and dismemberment and decapitation of his enemies in grisly detail. And you can go to the British Museum today. And there are large, huge stone reliefs, pictures that are they're carved in stone uh, that came from the Assyrian Empire that, that show how, how, again, all this stuff, this dismemberment and uh, people's heads on spikes, all this crazy stuff, it was, it's depicted in graphic detail uh, on those reliefs. Again, you can go to the British Museum today. According to Keller, here's what he said. The Assyrian history is as gory and as blood-curdling a history as we know. So again, Assyria is just to the north, just to the east of uh, Assyria was of Israel, and the drums of war were pounding in Jonah's day. The invasion of this uh, northern kingdom of Israel was looming on the horizon, and it's into this period that Jonah comes. Israel, now just a shell, a disobedient shell. Uh, so God isn't, you know, he's, they've, they've walked away from God. And so they're this disobedient shell of, of what was once a great nation. And that's them with the Syrian empire, uh, again, looming, the, the war looming on the horizon. And this is what the prophet of Jonah, the story of the prophet Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amitia, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh, uh, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrians. It was a great city, as, as Scripture describes it here. God is calling Jonah to go to the capital of the Assyrians, to Nineveh, and, and preach his message. And his message was a message of repentance. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose and fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea and the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship and the sea into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come let us cast lots that we may know uh, that, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah, and they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has uh, uh, or, or, uh, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What's your country, and what are your and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. And he made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is it that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said to him, What shall we do to you that we may quiet, that the sea may quiet down uh, for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. They could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So as we go back, we look closer at the story, just asking ourselves the question, okay, again, what can I learn, God, to apply in my own life? What can I learn, God, that we as a, as a people, as a church, what can we apply into, into our lives as a, as a church body? And there's a couple of things. Notice, and we'll go through that, but notice first as we start out what, what it says in that first verse, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. God is sending Jonah to Nineveh. Nineveh, again, is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And he's sending them there, him there with a message of repentance. Keller writes that it would be comparable to in the middle of World War II, at the height of the Nazi Empire during World War II, for a Jewish rabbi to stand on the street corners of Berlin preaching repentance of the Nazis for their atrocities. And that's what God is Pretty much, it's incomparably asking Jonah to do. And Jonah decides to do ex the exact opposite of what God asked him to do. Now, sidebar, we talk about this a lot, but I would not recommend you doing the exact opposite of what calls you, God calls you to do or asks you to do because every time uh, that we ever see that, it does not end well. It doesn't end well for him. It will not end well for us. Just a little pro tip. Uh, do not do the opposite of what God says. But we see that's what he does. Verse 3, tell, uh, it tells us that instead of going to Nineveh, he goes to Joppa. He wants to find a ship that's sailing to Tarshish. 
Tarshish was a, a city in southern Spain at the time. And for them, probably here in Israel in this era, it was the furthest point, furthest city away from where uh, Jonah was. And so God calls Jonah to go east and he goes west. God directs him to go over land and Jonah books a trip by sea. God sends him to the big city and Jonah buys a one-way ticket to the edge of nowhere. He does the exact opposite. He's running from God, running from his assignment from God, running from the presence of God. And I would just throw out that his theology is not even really great. He's a prophet of God, but his theology of I'm running from the presence of God when the God that he serves, we serve, is an omnipresent God. He is everywhere at the same time. You can never run away from God. He didn't get the memo. And so he's running, or he thinks he is, he's running away from God. Now we would assume that, that Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. I mean, I, I would not want to go to Nineveh because, I mean, that's a very, very dangerous assignment. And we assume that that's probably the reason, that he's afraid to go. That he'd be willing to go, but he's just afraid to deliver that message to them. But that's not the reason. We actually see the reason if we skip ahead, if you go to chapter 4, look at verse chapter 4 of Jonah. If you look at chapter 12, uh, of, and we'll go there, but what we know that Jonah eventually, to not bury the lead and to tell you what actually happens, he eventually goes and he does preach to the people of Nineveh and they do repent. Which seems amazing and awesome. The king, all the way down to the, just the, the regular people of the, of the land, repent and turn to God. And in response to that, this is what Jonah says in chapter 4, verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew but he's talking about, I knew if I preached repentance to these people, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He literally did not want to go to Nineveh because he knew that if they repented, that God would forgive them. And that's exactly what God did. So, he knew how gracious his God was, how merciful his God was, and that his God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And his reason for not going is because he didn't want them to repent. Because he wanted them to be destroyed. How much do you have to hate a people to want them to be destroyed? As he runs from God, verse 4 tells us that God hurls a great wind upon the sea. That word in the original language, hurled, is a word that means like throwing a spear. So God hurled this, this storm on Jonah. It was a mighty tempest, Scripture says. It's so bad that the professional sailors who did this for a living, when they see what's going on, they're like, this is not a normal storm. There is something supernatural going on here. And they begin to try to figure it out. They begin to do whatever they can do to try to, to, try to survive this storm. So they start throwing out the cargo. They start praying to their gods. And they, they serve different gods. So they're praying, like, everybody, pray to your God, whoever that God is. And so let's try to do whatever it takes trying to save themselves and to save their passengers. Meanwhile... Jonah, while they're praying, while they're doing everything they can, meanwhile, Jonah is down in the uh, below deck, basically, and he's sleeping. 
How crazy is that? That Jonah is in the interior of the ship, totally oblivious to what's going on, totally oblivious to the storm that's raging around him. How could anybody have slept through a storm like that? You probably know someone. Know someone whose life is just raging out of control, and it's like they're just sleeping through it. Like you are so concerned, you are so worried, you see the storm, you know the storm that they're going through, and they're like, they could like not, you care so much more than they care. Or I think we've all probably been in that stage of life where where we've got so much going on and there's such anxiety and there's such struggle and the storm is so great that all we want to do is just sleep. To just close our eyes and forget. And Jonah just wants to close his eyes and forget. And the ship captain comes to him, calls him out, goes down into the hole of the ship and wakes him up and tells him, you need to start praying. We all need to start praying. And meanwhile, as he's doing that, the, the, the other sailors, they're casting lots to see who's to blame. Who's the, who's the reason that this unnatural storm has hit us? Interesting to note that the sailors, they hadn't done anything wrong, but yet they are in the storm with Jonah. Life's kind of like that sometimes. Here's Jonah, and the cause is Jonah, but yet they're caught up with Jonah. And they start to try to figure out what's going on when they realize that Jonah is the cause, and so they begin to ask him questions. And his response is interesting. Look at verse 9. And what does he say in response? They ask him all these questions about him and what's going on and where you come from and all those things. He says, well, I'm a Hebrew. I'm a Jew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made, and then he says this, fascinating, who made the sea and dry land. So what? Okay, Jonah, let me get this straight. So you know, you fear God, But yet you know, as you are fleeing from him and you're living in willful disobedience, you got on a boat knowing that he created the sea. And when they hear that, what does Scripture say? They're even more afraid when they realize that the God who created the sea, that he's running from that God and they are on the sea. And now they really are freaked out as they're on this boat and things are not going well. But again, as, uh, the, the sailors are really, they've got some decent theology. And so, again, their theology's not bad because they, they kind of get uh, what's going on. And they, they say, well, what do we need to do to calm the storm? And Jonah says, well, throw me over. And when he suggests that, they don't throw him over. Instead, they begin to row even harder. Now, these are the kind of people that we need friends like this. That they understand what would save them, but they are willing to try to give their lives uh, to save him anyway. And so they row even harder. And so we need to give some props to to the sailors. They've got some decent theology, and they're doing everything they can to try to save, to save themselves, but also to save Jonah. 
And as the storm gets, that doesn't help, and the storm gets worse and worse and worse, and they finally realize that they, they're going to have to throw him over if anybody's going to survive. And as they're about to do that, they call out to God, God, don't hold this against us. And look what they say in verse 14, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleases you. They acknowledge, God, it's your right. If you want to do that, it's your prerogative to do in this, to, to this guy he's, living in disobedience to you and he's running away from you and so they finally throw him over and it says immediately the raging storm stops and what were what was their which i think is interesting too what was their reaction to that what was the sailor's reaction it says that they feared the lord they offer sacrifices they they make vows coming out of this storm about who their one true god is i love how jonah in his sleepy disobedience, God still uses him to reach these men and help them realize who the one true God is. Meanwhile, as Jonah now has been thrown into the water, God has, Scripture says, appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. Good thing the animal kingdom is more obedient than humanity, and the fish does exactly what the fish was created to do to swallow Jonah and so we see this supernatural again by the way if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus this is not a stretch at all to believe it but anyway sidebar Uh, and so he the fish swallows Jonah and verse 17 says and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights it's a great story it's not a story though there's some great truth that we can apply to our own lives some things that we need to learn that we need to get we need to pay attention to the first is this that every act of disobedience has a storm attached to it. Jonah runs from God. God tells him to do one thing, and he runs in the opposite direction. And he, as he runs from the, in the opposite direction, he encounters a storm. He runs into a storm. Again, every act of disobedience is always attached to a storm, has a storm attached to it. Numbers 32 23 says, But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure. Your sin will find you out. And that's a universal principle. Your sin will find you out. And so Jonah, he's running away from God. But he's not the only one that runs away from God. He's not the only one that runs in the opposite direction of what is clear, what God says. We do that too. God clearly tells us the dangers of materialism and greed. It's so easy for us to run the opposite direction getting our focus off of Christ and onto the toys of this world. Our God tells us clearly how to love those that, that are, are, are less fortunate than us, maybe that are in poverty or whatever, and we know what God tells us to do, but yet we do the opposite and we don't love them as God told us to love them. We look down our nose at people. God clearly tells us what's right and true when it comes to sexual ethics, and we run the opposite way, thinking that culture knows better or we know better. God clearly tells us in his word that we are to forgive as we have been forgiven, and yet we harbor ill will uh, toward people deciding that, well, God will, will be okay with an exception to his, with what he says about forgiving people, because he knows what they did to me. And so we run in the opposite direction of forgiveness and being forgiven, forgiving. 
God tells us that, that, that as a follower of Christ that we should live by the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit should be like who we are. And that should be, you know, people to be able to see that in us. That's the way we should live with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. But yet instead of seeing that as a fruit of the Spirit, like a single fruit and all of the dimensions of it is who we are as a follower of Jesus We want to take just the ones that are easy for us and forget the rest. And we run in the opposite direction of what God has clearly said. We are all Jonah's in our own right. Another way to think of it is, can we treat our bodies indifferently and still expect to have good health? Can we treat people with indifference and expect to maintain healthy relationships? Can we put our own selfish interest ahead of the common good and still have a functioning society? So if we sin against our bodies or again in our relationships or with to society, to our society, what's going to happen? It strikes back. They strike back. And again, every act of disobedience has a storm connected to it. And I think if we think back into our own lives, if we think about people that we are in relationship with. If we look at scripture, we see examples. Keller describes the consequences, again, those consequences that come, those storms that come. He, he compares it as a result of our sin, that sometimes those consequences come, it's like, uh, like there's some sin and the disobedience that, that we commit. And, and it's like a, that we're shot. And you know, you know when, when someone is shot, the impact is, is, is quick, it's painful, it can be devastating. It's like being shot. Other times when we, when we sin and we live in disobedience, it's more like being exposed to, exposed to a high dose of radiation. We don't even realize at first of any impact at all. But slowly, systematically, we're being eaten away at from the inside out. But, you know, don't, don't look the other way and don't misunderstand. There are consequences, even if they are not immediate. Every sin and act of disobedience has a storm attached to it. Another thing that I think is really important for us to look at and to understand in this story is that every storm isn't the consequence of our actions. So it's related, it seems similar, but, but really digest that because it's really important. This is a truth that we talk a lot about around here because it leaks out. This is a truth that leaks out of us. This truth that every storm is not the consequence of our actions. Think about the sailors on the boat. They hadn't done anything. These were good guys uh, willing to try to save Jonah from being hurled overboard Pretty decent theology, but they're still in the storm with him. Done nothing wrong, but still in the storm. And this is life. That sometimes storms are not the direct result of our own sin. Because remember, every, uh, I mean, sometimes they are. Because every sin or act of disobedience is, has a storm attached to it. And sometimes that is why we're in a storm. But other times, we're enduring storms. Not because of the consequence of our own sin, but the consequence of living in a fallen, broken, troubled, sinful world. And sometimes, unfortunately, the storm that we are in is the results of someone else's sin. Can I get an amen? That we've experienced that. That someone else does something, makes some decision, and that impacts us. And so we are then in the storm with them. The psalmist writes in Psalm 34, 19, 
Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord, the Lord delivers him out of them all. So God didn't tell us there wouldn't be storms, but he said, I will be with you in the storm. And one of the most important lessons for God's people to learn is this reminder and to constantly remind ourselves that there are many storms that come in this life, not as a result of something that we did, but as the result of living in this broken, sinful world. And this is, listen to me when I say this. Don't confuse the perfection of our heavenly home with the imperfections of this temporary home that we live in today. Jonah reminds us that storms will also be attached not just to our disobedience, but sometimes just by living in this world. Because that's the way this life is. They're not all tied to our disobedience. They're not all tied to our sin. Some come as a price of living in this world of free will and the sinful choices of those around us. So there's two things, real quick, as we conclude, that I wanted to make sure that we kind of get as a, as a church body, as individuals, but also as a church body, that have to do with fishing, that Jonah, not just in this first chapter, but throughout the book, have to teach us. And the first tip from the book of Jonah on fishing, first fishing tip is this, that God loves all fish. And by fish, I mean people. Jesus said in, in Matthew 4, 19, Matthew 4, 19, he said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of people. And so as we think about fish, think about people, the people of our world. And as we think about the story of Jonah, Jonah didn't want the people of Nineveh to be saved. He, he didn't want them to repent because he didn't want them to experience the mercy and grace of God. And sometimes we tend to be like Jonah. We want to pick and choose who deserves God's grace and mercy. And we have a tendency to write others off. And I want you to think about it. It wasn't that God disagreed with Jonah about the people of Nineveh. That, 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 I mean, he says, he says of them that, that their, their evil has risen up to me. He knows the evil that they had been, uh, the evil that was a part of who they were. They just, God and Jonah disagree about what to do about it. And Jonah wanted a God who smites bad people and blesses good people like him, or he thought that he was, and Jonah struggled with reconciling the mercy of God with the justice of God. He wanted the inhabitants of Nineveh, Nineveh to get God's judgment and God's justice, not his mercy. And God wanted to show him his mercy. And that's what we learn from Jonah, this book of Jonah. We learn God's heart. And God's heart is that God loves people, that God loves all fish. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Someone here today needs to be reminded that God loves you, that God cares for you, that you are not too far from him, that you've not done too much, that you, that even though maybe you're whispering that to yourself, or maybe the enemy is whispering that in your ear, that you're too far gone, that you're not this, or you're not that, or you're not as good as that person, or maybe there's some person in your life that's whispering that to you, or telling you that, but Hear me when I tell you that God loves you right where you are. And he also loves you enough to help you realize all the goodness that he has in store. As you submit to him, as you repent, and you let him 
transform your life. But God loves you. He wants to show you that. Um, in just a few minutes, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite you to repent if you've never done that before, and experience like the people of Nineveh, God's love and God's mercy and God's grace, today's your day. The second thing that I think all of us need to get, fishing tip from the book of Nona, from Jonah, is that God has called the church to fish. God has called us to love people. God has called us not to have the heart of Jonah, <laughs> but to have the heart of God, to see this world as God sees this world, to have compassion and want grace to flow into everyone's life, to, to love this world, to reach this world with the good news of Jesus Christ, that he's come that we could have life and life more abundantly, that God, friends, has called the church to fish. And the question is, how will we respond? Will we be like Jonah and respond in disobedience and walk the other way? Or will we do what we've been asked to do? 1 Peter 3, 15 but in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Can't forget those last two words, gentleness. Do it with gentleness and respect. In 2 Corinthians 5, 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God making his appeal to the world through us. We don't have to be Billy Graham to do what we can to be obedient to what we've been called to to reach our community for Jesus Christ. We can even be at times like a dis, like disobedient, sleepy Jonah. And God can use us to reach people as he reached a ship, ship full of sailors. First church, we've been called to be fishers of men. Fishers of people. And so I want to encourage you to join me. I'm going to ask our worship team to come back up. As they come back up, let me just challenge you. Here's what I would challenge us to do. And that would be first to pray. To pray that God would help us as a church across our multiple campuses, across our, you know, nonprofits, the things that we're doing, that everything that we do, that we pray and we seek and we, we desire, have a heart to see people transformed by Christ. For God's ideal to be restored, that we pray about that. We pray for people that we have in our lives that God has put us in proximity to. That maybe we're the only one that God could ever use to reach that particular person. Let's pray together, join together, and pray for people that are far from God. Second, something we've talked about before around here, but to invest and invite. To join me in that. That as we invest in people and as we build bridges and we love people and we serve people and serve in our community, as God then opens a door, I would encourage you to invite him to come with you to a place like this. We're going to start a series right after this series where we're gonna, it's gonna be on apologetics, which is the defense of the faith. And we're gonna talk about some of those hurdles that some people might have for putting their faith in Christ. And we're gonna talk through some of those. It would be the perfect opportunity for you to invite someone that's far from God, that's got a lot of questions about and hurdles to the faith, invite them to that series. So invest and invite. And then to just be willing as God opens the door to use you to tell your story. You don't have to be a theologian to tell your story about, here was my life before Christ. Here's how I, then I realized that I needed Christ in my own life, and now here's what my life is like now that I've put my faith in Jesus. Would you be willing to do that? This past weekend, we baptized 53 people in Lake Michigan. And I think, yeah, that's an awesome thing to celebrate. And I think there's another 13 or so before that, and so that's like 66, which preachers round up. I'm saying about 100 people this year already. And that's just the start of what God, friends, God wants to do.
through us as we reach this community, as we reach this world for Jesus. There's no better way to celebrate that than through communion. And so today, as we worship, I want to just remind us of what Jesus did, and we're going to take communion together, and we're going to celebrate Jesus. We're going to celebrate the bread that represents the body of Christ. We're going to celebrate the cup that represents the blood of Jesus. In the room, if you're here in the room, you can come to the corners here in the front of the room. And you can take communion. You can take some time if you want. If you want to kneel for a second and say a prayer and take communion, just you and the Lord together, you can do that. If you want to take it and go back to your seat, you can do that. But as I pray, I would invite you to just prepare your heart for this time of communion, of remembering what Jesus did for us. That, that Jesus loved us. God's loved us so much that he sent Christ. This is the heart of God. We see it in this book of Jonah. That he wanted the people of Nineveh, even how broken they were and how, how the atrocities they had committed, he still wanted them. He still pursued them. And he also still pursued Jonah. And he didn't give up on Jonah. Are you a Jonah today? God wants to give you a second chance. So prepare your heart. And as I pray, if you've never embraced Christ as your Savior, won't you pray with me as I pray? Father God, thank you. Thank you for the cup that represents the blood of, blood of Christ. We know your word says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so, God, we thank you for that Jesus on the cross shed his blood for us. We thank you for the body of Jesus, Jesus on the cross given for us. A sacrifice, a substitute for us on the cross. God, thank you for what you've done for us through Jesus. And so we remember we remember the sacrifice of Jesus. We remember that Christ was in the tomb for three days, just like Jonah, as he says in, in Matthew. He refers to this, this moment, just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale or fish for three days, so he would be and he was. And so, God, we remember Jesus, and we celebrate what Jesus did for us. And so, God, today I pray you would encourage us as we were reminded. And for that person today that's maybe praying for the very first time, as they confess their sins, I thank you, God, that you're faithful and just to forgive them of sin and forgive them from, and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. Thank you, God, for that. God, thank you for what you're doing in lives and hearts. We pray in Jesus' name.